Well, good morning. What a great morning it's been, and uh, really excited to look at God's Word with you this morning. We're halfway through a four-part series that we've started uh, examining the distinctive characteristics of who we are as God's people. We've identified worship and truth, community and mission as those distinctive essential characteristics that should be evident in all people called to serve in the name of Jesus Christ. They're kind of like his signature. Remember that masterpiece that he's created that says, this is what I've done. I have created this. As we begin this morning, I want to take the time to highlight something that I hope you've picked up on already. And in fact, as we went through our service this morning, it was evident even in what we did together this morning. Not because we planned it that way, but because it is the outcome of what happens when we faithfully walk where God is leading us. I want you to think about the fact that in the two characteristics that we've looked at so far, worship and truth, and let me just say that it will continue in the ones that we have remaining, they share a common trait of being Christ-centered. If you think about worship, when Jesus explains to that Samaritan woman that he meets by Jacob's well, he tells her that it's not about how you worship, it's about who you worship. And then you'll remember, he introduces himself as the Savior that she's been looking for and the very object of that worship that is in truth and in spirit. Genuine worship, he explains, is a Christ-centered worship. And the same could be said for truth. God-breathed truth is always a Christ-centered truth fact, as we talked about last time, apart from faith in Jesus Christ, God's truth has no transforming power in our life. This was clearly demonstrated in the false paths that we looked at together last week that were not centered on Christ. The path of my performance to gain God's favor. The path of my accomplishment to gain God's blessings. Jesus said, these are not the right paths. They're the blind leading the blind. He goes on to explain that there is only one true path, and that is me, because I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. As we look at biblical community this morning, I want you to notice how the trend continues. True biblical community is always a Christ-centered community. Each of these characteristics in God's design, in a way, are authenticated by the fact that they are Christ-centered. We know that we are hitting the mark when Jesus is that mark. That's important for us to keep in mind. Before we look at his word together, let's pray together. God, we do want to come to you and be reminded of the centrality of of Jesus Christ as the very object of our worship, the source of our salvation, and the hope of all eternity. May everything we do this morning bring glory to your name for the purpose of which we were created as a people of God, a people of your possession, a people to bring glory to your name. We pray this in your name, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
Well, as we begin this morning, I want to make a case that true biblical community is not something that we create, but instead it's an essential part of our DNA. It's who we are. In a, in a sense, fellowship is, is a part of our spiritual DNA. You and I have a genetic predisposition, if you will, towards living in community. But as we know, if you look at genetics, they can be a little bit tricky, can't they? Uh, science has taught us that there are certain genetic predispositions that we can have that don't necessarily have to dictate who we will be. For example, we know that studies have found that those who grow up with a history of alcoholism in their family have a genetic predisposition towards carry on the same trait. But we also know that just because that predisposition exists, they are not doomed to repeat that addiction. They have the ability to live something different. We see something very similar in the genetic predisposition towards obesity. That too is something that can exist that might lend somebody towards that, but yet they could choose something different by a healthy lifestyle. It may be harder, but not impossible to live that healthy lifestyle. The same can be true on the other side of things. If think about last week, we talked about Usain Bolt and, and Michael Phelps. You remember that? Remember where we talked about everything about Usain Bolt, when you look at him, says the man is fast, right? Everything about him, he's got these big, long legs, this tall, muscular, sleek, fast-looking physique, right? And he's fast. If you look at Michael Phelps, I think his arms are longer than the average person. He's got these windmill-sized arms. And if you've ever watched him underneath the water with those cameras whenever he kicks off the wall and he does that little dolphin thing, I think he's got mammal genes or something. <laughs> but everything about them tells us that there's something extraordinary about the abilities that they possess. In some ways, I think they were genetically predisposed to be extraordinary in their field of expertise. But the fact is, if these two men would have grown up living life on their couch, eating potato chips and watching video games, they would not have miraculously morphed into these extraordinary athletes. In either case, mankind has certain choices to make in order for their genetic predispositions to either be developed or suppressed. Now, I make this point because I believe the, the fellowship that we have as a part of our spiritual DNA works in very much the same way. But in order for us to, to look at that together, we must first be convinced that we all do share this capacity for community and fellowship. I want to explain to you what I believe to be the case, that, that all humanity universally exhibits the desire and capacity for fellowship and community. And let me tell you why. And just so you know, right up front, that this is not my opinion. I believe that this comes forth from a clear testimony of Scripture that tells us that who we are originates from who God is. We possess certain characteristics because we are, in fact, created in the image of God. So let's take, for example, what we talked about last week. Just consider some of the things that we examined together in the life of Jesus as he spoke to his disciples and revealed to us something about who God is. 
One of those examples is in John 14 in response to, to Philip's uh, question to Jesus about asking to see the Father. You remember what Jesus said in response to, to Philip's question. He says, when you see me, you see the Father. He goes on to say that he does nothing on his own initiative. But he says that the Father abiding in him does his works. What Jesus is speaking of and what we see demonstrated all throughout Scripture is the complete interdependence and unity of the Godhead. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are one God with one mind intent on one purpose. There's no confusion in the fellowship of the Trinity in everything God does is to bring Him glory for His good and the good of the people who love Him. This is always the case, without exception. Later on in that same dialogue, Jesus will tell His disciples that the Father will send the Holy Spirit in His name. And the Spirit will teach and bring to remembrance all that Jesus had taught them. Here again, the the fellowship of the Trinity is in complete cooperation the message given by the spirit is the same that was given by jesus himself and those words spoken by jesus as he told us tells us we're in complete harmony with the heart of god the father here we see a single message and a shared mission the point is is that the testimony of scripture speaks early and often about the perfect fellowship of the Trinity. God is always revealed with one mind, intent on one purpose, single message, and a shared mission. So without confusion or, or conflict, it is in fact the perfect fellowship because it is who God is. Now, thinking about that and, and knowing that this is true, now let's consider what impact that has on the fact that we were created in that image fellowship according to god's design is a part of our dna you can go all the way back to genesis early in the creation story when god breathed life into man and he looked upon that creation and you remember what he said he said it's not good for man to be alone why did he say that I believe it's because we were created for community. Having been made in the image of God, fellowship is a part of our DNA. And Scripture teaches us from the very beginning that no individual is complete within himself. Who we are originates from who God is, and it's not good for man to be alone. Now, that being said... We can also examine the truth of Scripture and realize that we can take that gift and go one of two possible directions. You see, when sin was introduced, it corrupted the perfection of God's original design, including the capacity that we have for fellowship and community. Early in the biblical narrative, we see the evidence of man's inclination to use this divine gift for selfish gain. Well, let's look at this one together. Turn to Genesis chapter 11. Very familiar story 
of the Tower of Babel. So Genesis chapter 11. But as we read this together, I want you to really pay attention to the heart of what is happening here based on what we just talked about. Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. says this, now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Then they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. And they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city, a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Did you notice as we looked at those verses, the shadow of divine fellowship? The text tells us that they came together with one mind. They were intent on one purpose. They had a single language at that time and a very clear shared mission to build this tower. That's got divine fellowship written all over it. The problem is that sin has corrupted this blessing and turned it into a means to accomplish selfish gain. Instead of seeking fellowship with God, they sought to use the collective effort to live in independence from God. They set out to find life in the fellowship of of community instead of living in community and finding life and fellowship with God, their creator. And what happens next, in my mind, is a divine act of mercy. Look at verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have the same language and This is what they began to do. And now nothing which they propose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there and and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad there over the face of the whole earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel because the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. Of the whole earth. As I read this, I see God's mercy in this divine judgment. Mankind was well on his way of using his capacity for community to live universally in independence from God. Instead of seeking fellowship that was centered on God, they chose to use that part of who they are to live collectively in independence from God. The decision of all humanity at that point in time was a choice to live in the fellowship of community apart from their Redeemer. Humanity, as we know it, was doomed for destruction. We need to understand when we read this that the story ends right there unless God intervenes. Because there is no salvation For those who choose to live apart from him who gives us life. And that was where they were going. So God mercifully, mercifully disrupts 
their plans, confuses their language, and graciously gives them another opportunity to find the fulfillment of their heart's desire in fellowship with him. When I consider this account, I see this as as man's version of living in community. (laughs) The goal is selfish gain justified disobedience and the desire to have a fulfilled life apart from fellowship with and for God. Interestingly enough, the very next event recorded in Scripture after this debacle is the calling of Abraham. You remember when we looked at this not too long ago, God calls Abraham out of Ur to go to the promised land and when he goes there, he gives him promise. So right next to this example of man's corruption is the evidence of God's redemption. That's not an accident. And if you look at scripture, you will see it over and over and over again. God intervened for the salvation of his creation. If you would just look over to Genesis chapter 12, it's just a few verses over where that promise made by God to Abraham is recorded. Chapter 12, verse 1 says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. So you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, We've seen that from man's version of community, it heads down a path of inevitable destruction. But when God steps into the scene, we see his version. And it's designed to call the people together to carry out his redemptive purpose in the world. God said, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you so that you can be a blessing to all the nations. In other words, I will create a people, a people of God, who will carry out my redemptive purpose on the earth. Because through you, I will reveal the way of salvation. That's God's design. The story unfolds over time. We begin to see what this looks like increasingly until the time when we see Moses step on the scene. And perhaps it's at that time that we get the clearest understanding of God's design that he has for the people that he has chosen. We won't go into all the details of of the commandments and the, the law and the ceremony, but if you were to look at that, there is no denying that everything that God did and all the instructions that he gave were centered on him to bring him glory. In fact, what was the very first commandment that God gave this people that he called together? Remember? Know this first of all. I am the Lord your God, and you shall have no other gods before me. Worship me alone. God's design for community has always been centered on God's glory. He's a jealous God, and not because he's selfish, but because he's loving. For he knows, because he created us in his image, 
that the desire of our heart is only fulfilled when we find fellowship in Him. And He knows that we are are prone to wander away from that design. So in gracious mercy, everything God has given us in the description of His truth revealed in Scripture points us to Him. The place where we find our ultimate purpose and fulfillment. But unfortunately, the the corruption of sin continues to to redirect the focus of God's people. We know that throughout Scripture and even into today, God's people continue to pick up bricks, don't they, and start to build their own towers. As we learned a a couple of weeks ago, as we looked at uh, the topic of worship, the people of God became less concerned with God's glory and more concerned with their personal pleasure. Their pagan neighbors invited them to think less of God and more of themselves, and and sadly, they accepted. Worship became what's best for me and was no longer centered on the glory of God as he designed it. Temples to false gods were erected, both physically and in their hearts, to the point where Scripture tells us that they forgot about the Lord. This compromise, as we saw last week, didn't get much better by the time we get to the New Testament. Here we find the the leaders of God's people guiding the community of God down a path that led them away from God instead of to Him. Man's version of community once again gained a foothold. And the Tower of Babel, in a very real way, was being rebuilt. But once again... Because of his great love, God very literally steps onto the scene to set things right once and for all. Jesus Christ was sent to redeem the people of God and become the cornerstone of a new and everlasting community. A community of of Christ followers who would exist according to the original design to bring God glory. And to find ultimate fulfillment in fellowship with Him. Let me just say here that this is the part that we need to be keyed in on. We need to grasp this. Because this describes who we are as the church of Jesus Christ. God has graciously fulfilled His promise. And He has restored His people. The Good Shepherd has come to seek and save that which was lost. Now, there are plenty of passages that we could look at to see how this unfolds. And one of my favorites is in 1 Peter, and we're going to look at that. But, but before I do, I want to give you a little background and set this up. If we go back to that occasion when Moses gathered that people of God together and gave them the instructions that I alluded to, and he tells them what it means to be a people of God, one of the things he says is, something that God asked him to tell the people. Let me just read this to you from Exodus chapter 19, verse 3. He says this, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that 
you shall speak to the sons of Israel. The prophet Isaiah would later remind God's people of those words and add to that by helping them understand when he says, God said, you are the people whom I formed for myself. You are the ones who will declare my praise. Now turn to 1 Peter chapter 1 or chapter 2 verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9. Listen as I read, and I want you to notice the echo of that divine design we read from Exodus. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Do you see the echo of that original design? The church of Jesus Christ was created not to replace Israel, but to fulfill those promises made to Israel. Jesus Christ is the promised seed of Abraham who did come from the nation of Israel. The salvation we have in Him is because of the fulfillment of that promise made by God to bless those in every nation who find forgiveness through faith in Him. Colossians tells us that that Jesus Christ is before all things and in Him all things hold together. He's the head of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he himself might have first place in everything. Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose again in order that those who have faith in him might come together in a Christ-centered community. Now listen to this with one mind, one purpose, a single message, and a shared mission that is who god is and that is who he has called us to be we know this is true because it's all throughout scripture but what stands out to me is when jesus prayed and what did he say he said god father may they be one as we are one In other words, may they fulfill their divine design having been created in our image for our glory and for the good of those who live in fellowship with God through Christ. May they be a people of one mind, with one purpose, a single message, and a shared mission. That is who God is, and that is who he has created us to be. It begins as we enter into fellowship with him through faith in Jesus Christ. And it is fulfilled when we function according to that divine design as a community of Christ followers who live to bring him glory. Peter goes on this passage to to describe for us those characteristics of what this should look like. When When this fleshes itself out, what should we see? 
And I want to just highlight these characteristics that he so clearly gives us. He says, first of all, you are a chosen race. Now, some of your Bibles may say chosen people. That's okay. I prefer chosen race because I think it more clearly describes a specific people who have a common ancestor. That's technically the definition of a race of people. And that describes us. Because by faith, we are adopted to God's, into God's family as brothers and sisters in Christ. We have one ancestor, if you will, the person Jesus Christ, the object of our faith. Our primary goal is to grow in our relationship with him and encourage others to do the same. The first and most important characteristic of who we are as God's people is the fact that we are a Christ-centered community. Who we are has been made possible because of who he is. And what he has done on our behalf. We are a people of his own possession. That's who we are. The next thing Peter tells us is that we're a royal priesthood. Now, to understand this, we need to think back to that original instruction given to us in the Old Testament. When Moses laid out the, the stipulations of what it means to be a priest within that temple ceremony and sacrifice. We learn that the priests were the only ones who could enter into God's presence and intercede on behalf of the people. They were uniquely ordained to have direct access to God. And Peter takes the same imagery and he tells the church, you and I, and he says, that's who you are. That's who you are. As a child of God in the community of faith, you can approach the throne of grace with confidence. You have been ordained as a child of God to have direct access to the Father and the responsibility to be a minister of reconciliation, to, to intercede on the behalf of others. We know this is true because of what is written in Scripture. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, he says, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him, and he has committed to us this word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. This is the attribute that protects us from being too inwardly focused. It keeps us from being so comfortable in our relationships with one another that we lose our ability or, or even worse perhaps, our desire to relate with others outside of our selective group. What you and I do together is only beneficial to the degree that it helps us grow in Christ and motivates us to share that love with those who are around us. You see, the, the testimony of Scripture, and it's made most evident in the life of Jesus Christ, is that the love of God has no boundary. And as a community of Christ followers, neither should our love. 
We are ministers of reconciliation. We are a Christ-centered community. And then he tells us finally that we are a people designed to bring God glory. He says, you are a holy nation belonging to God that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And the idea of this holy nation is a people who are set apart, who share a, a common citizenship. You may remember back when we did Philippians, Paul had this same idea in mind when he tells us that our citizenship is in heaven. For we eagerly await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. As a people of God, we need to understand that this world is not our home. And John tells us that we should not love the world nor the things of the world. As we noted earlier, Paul uses the term ambassador for Christ. And in our culture and context, that should make sense to us. If you are an ambassador for the United States, for example, and you're sent to Russia, you enter into that country as a foreigner with a primary purpose of establishing peace. Ideally, that's what an ambassador is called to do. Well, in the same way, you and I are ambassadors in Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we are foreigners in this world in which we live. We're here for one primary reason, and that is to declare the peace that comes through salvation in Jesus Christ given to us by the King whom we've chosen to serve. That's why we're here. The best way to share that peace, Peter says, is to declare the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Tell people about the king who set you free from the bondage of sin through faith in Jesus Christ. Tell them about the fulfillment that you have found through fellowship with God through Christ alone. Tell them about the, the power that indwells you through the Holy Spirit, the truth that has transformed you through the power of his word. And has changed your life both now and for all eternity. Linda showed me this past week an article. You might have seen it in Wednesday's paper that was written by Dr. Cupty. I know Dr. Cupty has done this for several years where he'll take out and, and just kind of share some things about Christ. And I've always appreciated what he did. But, but this year was really unique. And if you haven't seen it, I'd encourage you to take a look at it. Because he just basically writes his testimony in the paper. Half page. Uh, that he paid for, I'm sure. And, and what he goes on to do is he describes life-changing events in his life. And he, he talks about what happened in 1999 when his daughter was tragically killed in a bus accident that many of us probably remember. He, he talked about how that changed his life and, and set him on a course to, to really focus more on doing what's right in the eyes of God. And so he became active in his church and he, he did all those things that uh, a, a good member of a church should do. But then he said he came to a point where he realized and confessed openly in this testimony that I never picked up the Bible and read it for myself. I'm involved in the church. I'm doing all these things, but I don't look at this thing. So he said what I decided to do a year ago was to read it and to consider what impact it has in my life. He says, I finished it on December the 7th or 11th. I don't remember which day for sure. But he goes on to explain that of all the events that have happened in my life, nothing has transformed me more than the time that I spent in this book. That's what he said. And I believe that what he did is exactly what God has called us to do as ambassadors 
for Jesus Christ. The testimony he gave is a life changed through faith in him and the power of his word that transforms our life when we put our trust in him. Because I want to remind you, we are not immune to the temptation to build a tower. Not unlike God's people throughout the ages, it's just as easy for you and I to become distracted from our original design to turn what God intended for a blessing to be most pleasing in Him to something that we use to be most pleasing to us. Even in the community of faith, we can become so self-absorbed with self-improvement that our focus becomes more of what I need to do for God instead of realizing what God has done for me. We're prone to look at ourselves and our performance more than we look at Christ and what he has made possible through faith and trust in him. We chart a course, as I've confessed before, leading the way and asking God to join us and bless those efforts instead of waiting on the Lord and following him. The fellow pastor once said, my greatest need and yours as well is to look at Christ more than I look at myself. Because the gospel is not my work for Jesus, but Jesus' work for me. What I need most is for you to remind me of what Christ has already done, not what I must do. Because ultimately, and I believe this to be true, this is my thought, but I believe that my obedience is not something that I do for God. It is the result of living in the reality of what God has already done for me. Because of the passage that I keep going back to over and over again is the one that says that, that I am his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand so that I can walk in them. When I look at that description, I say, that's a life of obedience, following what God has prepared beforehand. So when we're together, whether it's what we do on Sunday morning worship or our ABFs, our our Bible studies, or even when we meet at small groups. Let's make sure that we speak more of Him than we do ourselves. Now let's be honest about what's going on in our life and, and, and let's talk about those things that we may be struggling through, but only in the context of who we are in Christ. Here's what's going on in my life should always be balanced with, and this is what God says about that. Lay aside as Paul reminded us this morning, the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. That's who we need to be. So let's put away our bricks from building our own towers and let's give ourselves to the calling of being used by our king to build his kingdom on earth who we are originates from who god is fellowship is a part of our dna we can either turn that community into selfish gain or we can live according to god's design to bring glory to his name christ has come to establish a people whose lives are centered on him who are ambassadors for christ and ministers of reconciliation so that all we do is motivated to bring glory to God, our Redeemer. That's what biblical community looks like. 
And that's what we are called to be as a community of Christ followers. To the praise and glory of his grace. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, that's who we want to be. And we even express that desire only because that's who you created us to be. And you put that seed within us that seeks to find our hope and fellowship with you. And only through that can we then experience the fullness of the fellowship of the community that you created for the purpose of bringing glory to your name, to declaring your redemption. I have been overwhelmed recently, God, with example after example in Scripture where we are headed in the wrong direction and you mercifully interrupt us so that our eyes are turned back to you and that we find our salvation in you, our, our hope in you. That we understand that, that life is found in fellowship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. So that we can live in a community that brings glory to your name. Father, may we be that people. May everything we do be designed to fulfill what you've created within us. May we be who we need to be because of who you are. We pray this in your name. Amen.